Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 26. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing a bed. So some men were, bring, some men were bringing a bed with, on a man, with a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Holy God, as we approach your holy word, Lord, we praise you for what it reveals about you. Lord Jesus, what your word reveals about who you are, what you came to do, and what is the appropriate and necessary response to you. We pray, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would see Jesus this morning. Lord, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would respond to Jesus this morning with repentance, with faith, with love and worship. We pray this, that your church might be built and that your name might be glorified in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love my deck. It's my favorite part of the house. From early spring to late autumn, we'll eat countless breakfasts, lunches, and dinners on the deck. Many precious hours have been spent with family and friends. Many memories have been made on that deck. I read out there, study out there, relax out there, and yes, even nap out there. I remember so well driving to Revelstoke to pick up the cedar for that deck. I had a really good deal through a friend from Gorman's Mill. 
I remember the smell of that cedar. It was just so clean and so fresh. I remember carefully staining every board and screwing every board down. I remember Jane and I, when we were newly married, being out there um, putting together the louvers that, that open and close. It was our first project together. But over the years, the boards started getting dirty. They grew darker as dirt and dust and pollen from the air settled on them. And then a couple of months ago, we got a puppy. You know where I'm going with this? It was during a, a very cold snap. In fact, probably the coldest I've ever experienced here in Kelowna. If you know anything about puppies, they go to the bathroom a lot. They need to go every couple of hours and we couldn't let her into the yard because Huskies are notorious escape artists and we didn't have time to take her for a walk every two hours. So you can imagine what we did. We put her out on the deck. And at first when she was on top of the snow, it was pretty easy to clean up and, and, it was, and you, you didn't really notice what was going on. But, but as the snow began to melt, we began to have a problem. Not only was the deck already dirty, but it was now really dirty from the dog. Now again, we were able to, to pick things up, but, but still, there's, there was a residual mess. It's, it's, it wasn't clean. And there was no way anyone would be able to use that deck as it stood. The, the, the pleasure that, that I would have experienced from the deck was now inhibited by the filth of the deck. And as the weather warmed up, we had an opportunity with, with Liam's birthday party to, to give me incentive to clean the deck. So he wanted, he wanted to have a, um, a, a little fire on the, the gas fire outside and, and to cook hot dogs with his friends. And so I got a pressure washer out and, and, and meticulously cleaned the deck. And it was amazing. The deck actually came out even almost as, as clean as, as when it was first put together. And when I find myself, when I'm, I'm, do, do, when I'm doing dishes, which does happen sometimes, I'll be looking at the window at my deck, my clean deck. You know, as I go past the window, the, the brightness of it catches my eye. Maybe you don't have that kind of relationship with your deck that I do, but, but you get the point. There's something that, that, that we enjoy, something that, that we, we appreciate, but the dirt gets in the way. The dirt gets in the way, and we still have a puppy. So it's, it's, she's getting a lot better, but, but stuff happens and we still have to continue to clean the deck. You might be wondering, well, what on earth is he talking about? Here's my point. The deck is just like us. We have so much potential. We have so much to offer. We, all have, we are, after all, made in the image of God. And we have the, the privilege in fact, we've been made to, to love and to worship God. But we get dirty. We get dirty from the sin in the environment. We get dirty from the, from the dirt we come into contact with. We get, we get dirty from the dirt of others as it sticks to us. And a thorough cleansing is necessary in order for us to be what we've been made to be. But even if we get cleaned, more dirt comes. And we, get, we just get dirty again. We need regular cleaning. 
Now, of course, the analogy isn't perfect. The, the difference between us and the deck is that the deck is made dirty from the outside and we're dirty on the inside. And furthermore, the deck can't help but get dirty. But we want to get dirty. We enjoy getting dirty. Our, our sinful hearts make, it, make us complicit in collecting dirt. We need more than an exterior pressure washing. We need to be completely rebuilt. And that's where God comes in. He completely rebuilds us from the ground up or from the, the heart out. He cleanses us from the sin that clings so closely. He washes us clean by first giving us hearts that love him and worship him and continually change their lives so that they're gradually conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, this morning we're continuing to see Jesus' authority on display. We've seen his authority over demons. We've seen his authority over disease. We've seen his authority over nature. And this morning we're going to see his authority to cleanse. Again, we're going to see Jesus performing miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, we'll see that the miracles are a parable pointing to who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how one should respond to him. In Luke's gospel account, the first view that we get of Jesus' ministry is his proclamation in Luke 4, verses 18 to 19, where he quotes the prophet Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus declared in verse 21 of chapter 4, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We've already seen throughout the, the, the first four chapters and into the fifth chapter of Luke's gospel account how, how, how part of Luke's focus is on the fulfillment of promises, how Jesus comes as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Well, this, the rest of Luke's gospel account is going to continue to reveal how Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture, and specifically the Scripture that he quoted from Isaiah. Jesus is revealing that he is the Messiah. He is the promised King. And so Luke is developing the picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And each episode that, that Luke adds, adds another layer building on the previous information that he's already given and preparing us for what's coming next. So again, in this passage, Jesus is ministering to the helpless and the unclean. Like Elijah and Elisha from Luke 4, Jesus is ministering to outsiders. Now, so far, we've seen all kinds of responses to Jesus. We've seen violent rejection in Nazareth. We've seen selfish rejection in Capernaum. We've seen repentance and faith in Peter, James, and John. Well, once again, we're going to see Jesus' authority, and we're going to see people's response to him. But this morning, we're going to see a new response. Well, actually, two new responses to Jesus, ones that are going to be repeated through the rest of Luke's gospel account. So this morning we're going to see Jesus' authority over leprosy in verses 12 and 13, and then the people's response to Jesus in verses 14 to 16. 
And then we're going to see Jesus' authority over sin in verses 18 to 24, and then the people's response to Jesus again from verses 25 and 26. So first of all, Jesus' authority over leprosy, verses 12 and 13. This first demonstration of, Luke, of Jesus' authority that we're going to see takes place here in an unknown city. Now this miracle is related in, in all three gospel accounts, but in different order. As we've seen already, Luke is not necessarily presenting these incidents chronologically, but theologically and geographically. There's, there's a point that Luke is wanting to make, and, and the way he builds things to a crescendo is, is very intentional. Remember, he's not an eyewitness of these things. He has gathered this information from many different sources. And he's presenting these things to Theophilus to, to show him that he can have confidence in the fact that the things that he has heard about Jesus are indeed true. In Mark, the, um, this incident is, is included immediately after the events in Capernaum where the people found Jesus in the wilderness and tried to make him stay there. And Matthew includes this right after the Sermon on the Mount. So here in Luke, a, a man approaches Jesus. Many had crowded around Jesus and pressed in on him. But this man was different. This man had leprosy. Luke tells us what seems to be another medical term that this man was full of leprosy, a, what seemed to be a very severe case of leprosy. Now the term leprosy is used in the Bible to refer to a variety of diseases, many of which were incurable, disfiguring, and even fatal. Now what we know of, of le as leprosy today, Hansen's disease is caused by a chronic bacterial infection that results in disfiguring sores on the skin and damage to the nerves. It's contagious. It can lead to, it can lead to, uh, to amputation as, uh, as, as infection spreads through the body. But now whether this is the same disease or not, we don't know, but we do know that this was contagious. The only response to leprosy, according to the Mosaic cleanliness laws, was for the infected person to call out unclean as they, they went through the city so the people could avoid them. And to be quarantined on the, on the outside so as not to spread infection among the populace. This is specified in Luke chapter 13. And having no means of employment, the leper would, be, would have to defend on, depend on charity. When this man saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This introduction to the leper here reminds us of Jesus' reference to Elisha's healing of Syrian, the leper, of the Syrian leper Naaman in Luke 4.27, where, remember, God used Elisha to heal an outsider. So the question would begin to rise in the minds of Jesus' first readers, those who didn't, had didn't of Luke's first readers who didn't, had didn't know this, this incident yet. What is Jesus going to do with this unclean outsider? This man was supposed to be outside of the camp, but here he was inside the city. In fact, he was close enough to Jesus to fall down before him. Remember earlier in chapter 5, Peter had, had fallen down at, at Jesus' knees. Well, this man fell on his own face. 
He bowed all the way to the ground. Peter knew that he had been defiled by sin and asked Jesus to depart from him. This man knew that he was defiled with a contagious disease and asked Jesus to cleanse him. What will Jesus do with this defiled man? Notice that the man calls Jesus Lord. He refers to him as Lord. This is a, this is a statement of, of deference. He was acknowledging Jesus that Jesus had authority. This is very likely not a full recognition of his deity, but he was at least aware of the fact that God was at work through Jesus. This man knew that Jesus was able to cleanse him, but didn't know if Jesus was willing to cleanse him. Jesus was willing. Jesus did not leave Peter, and he won't leave this man either. Jesus stretched out his arm and touched him and said, I will be clean. Let's just stop there for a moment. This was a contagious disease. Touching a leper would very like mean, likely mean contracting leprosy. At the very least, it would have made the person who touched the leper unclean. But Jesus reached out and touched him. Tender mercy. Jesus' word would have been enough, but Jesus touched him. He showed compassion on him. He, he could have just said, be clean, and the man would have been clean. But Jesus was showing personal care. This man would not have had anyone touch him since he had contracted the disease. Imagine that in your own life. No one ever hugging you. No one ever shaking your hand or giving you a pat on the back. If people saw you on the street, they would cross to the other side. But Jesus touched him. Jesus touched him. This ministry of Jesus to the man reminds me of what the Christians in, in Wuhan, China were doing during the outbreak of, of COVID-19, of coronavirus, putting their own health at risk in order to minister the gospel to others in the city. They, remember, they handed out gospel tracts. We prayed for them. They handed out gospel tracts and masks, knowing that the authorities would not give them trouble because of the quarantine orders. And in fact, many even of the, of the police in the city who had previously persecuted them and arrested them were, were now coming to them receiving gospel tracts and bringing other police officers back to them to receive gospel tracts. It also reminds me of the Puritans who had been willing to submit to the unbiblical requirements of the Church of England. And in, in 1662, they, these Puritans were rejected en masse from their pastorates. And then under the Clarendon Code, they were banned from meeting with groups of more than five people. And they were banned from coming within five miles of a city. Does that sound familiar? But when in, 1960, in 1665, when the bubonic plague hit London, many in the Anglican church hierarchy fled for the countryside. They didn't know what was causing the plague, but they knew that it was gathered in the cities. And so they left. And they vacated pulpits. So these faithful Puritans 
took the opportunity and they went back to those pulpits that had been, vac that had been vacated and they preached the gospel. They ministered to those who were sick and those who were dying with the plague. They were following in the compassionate footsteps of Jesus. Jesus reached out and touched this leper. In the, in the power and the authority of God, at Jesus' word, this leper was no longer a leper. This unclean man was no longer unclean. Immediately, we're told, the leprosy left him. And this miracle, like the other miracles we've seen so far, is a parable, isn't it? It, it shows us who Jesus is. It reveals that Jesus is indeed the anointed one of Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. That he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He is the one who, who came to proclaim good news to the poor. The one who came to provide liberty to captives and to the oppressed. And Jesus is revealing who he is by cleansing this man. He he's revealing that he has authority not just over the uncleanness that, that comes through leprosy, but through all uncleanness. Have you ever felt isolated, completely alone in the world? In Jesus, you're never alone. Jesus didn't just come near this leper. Jesus came into this sinful world entirely populated by, by spiritual lepers. The whole world is a spiritual leper colony. But Jesus came into that, into all that uncleanness, and came to cleanse the people that he had chosen to cleanse. I wonder, are you here this morning as a spiritual leper? Are you defiled with sin? Jesus is willing to make you clean. Jesus is loving. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus can cleanse your soul. Fellow Christians, you and I were spiritual lepers, infected and infecting others with our disease. You and I were radically unclean before the holy God. But Jesus came near. Jesus came near to you and to me. And he has touched us. He has made us clean. We were once unclean, but we have been made thoroughly and radically clean. And Jesus is continuing to cleanse us. He's still cleansing us from the sin that still clings so closely. Jesus is able to cleanse you from your physical infirmities. But he may not be willing to cleanse you from your physical impurities. And if he isn't willing to cleanse you of your physical impurities, it's because he has a higher purpose for your physical infirmities. Your physical infirmities will continue through the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to be worked together for your good and for the glory of God. If you're struggling with infirmity, with, with any 
type of infirmity and God has not removed that from you, it's because he has a better plan for you. Because he knows you'll be able to better glorify him through that infirmity than you would be if it was removed. Well, Jesus may not be willing to cleanse you of your physical infirmities, but one thing you can be sure of is that he's willing to cleanse you of your spiritual infirmities. This man would no longer have to, to go through the streets calling out, unclean. Brother Christian, sister Christian, neither do you and I. We have been cleansed of a disease far more defiling, far more contagious, and far more deadly than leprosy. You and I have been cleansed from our unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the, the second half of, of what what John is talking about there, he's done. We have been cleansed. Jesus is faithful, not just to forgive, but also to cleanse. In a moment, we're going to be looking at the forgiveness part, but first, let's consider the people's response to Jesus. In verses 14 to 16, well, Jesus, notice, gave the, the, the man two commands. Tell no one, and then go to the priests with an offering. Now, why did Jesus tell this man not to tell anyone? Well, most likely it's because he didn't want pub the publicity to hinder his ministry or to detract from his message. The miracles were to authenticate his message, to augment his message, not to undermine his message. Mark tells us that he, that he gave the man a stern warning not to tell anyone. As for Jesus' second command to the man, to show himself to the priest and to make an offering for cleansing, well, Luke tells us why. It was as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus commanded the man to perform a religious offering as the ceremonial law required in Leviticus 14. Even though Jesus knew that the religious offerings and the, the ceremonial law were about to be completely abrogated, by him, nonetheless, here before the cross, he respected it. He knew that those things were shadows and types. The value of these ceremonial laws was in that they pointed to him. The offering that this man was, was commanded in Leviticus 14 to give was, was mainly made up of a, of a blood sacrifice. There were, would have been two birds. One would have been killed, and then the other one would have had the blood from the first bird poured on it, and the, the, that bird would have been sent out into the wilderness. And then eight days later, he was to come back and make another offering of, of two lambs and, and of a ewe. These are blood sacrifices. If, if the man was unable to afford that, then he was able to to substitute a dove for one of the other lambs. Again, all of those sacrifices, all of that blood points to the blood of Jesus. And here we are before the cross, having Jesus now acknowledge that there's still a value in that. This is also to be a proof, to be a testimony to them, that the same root is uh, it's the same as the root that's the, of the word that's translated witness. Now, given the, the fact that, the, that Jesus had told the man not to tell anyone, it likely means that this was to be a witness to the priests. 
that, that he was to go to the priests and, and in obedience to the ceremonial law to show, that he was, to show them that Jesus had cleansed him. It is going to be a, a testimony to the priests of what had happened through the ministry of Jesus. Well, what happens next? Though Jesus had given the man a warning, a stern warning to keep quiet about it, Mark tells us that the man ignored the warning and told many. And so crowds now gathered to hear Jesus and to be healed. It's a similar response to what we saw in Capernaum, isn't it? At least in part. There's no mention here that they wanted to keep him there, but neither is there any mention of them wanting to worship him or to repent before him. And as a result of the gathering crowds, Jesus could no longer openly go into a town, but he had to relocate into the wilderness. Mark 1.45. Luke tells us that, that Jesus went to, to pray, that he withdrew to pray, and that this was his ongoing practice, made even more necessary by the growing crowds. So again, the location of his previous temptation now becomes the location of his rejuvenation. Maintaining his connection with God was vital for his ministry. But not just that. His connection with God was vital for his own spiritual well-being. Now, I, I really recommend that you regularly set aside time from the busyness, busyness of life and take a spiritual holiday. Take a day or, or even a morning. Take your Bible and a, and a journal and head out to a quiet place like a hill or, or a mountain or beside a lake and read your Bible, pray, and journal. You can even make this an opportunity to fast. And husbands, don't just do this yourselves but enable your wife to do it. Saying, honey, I will, I will look after the kids today. Please go and, and take this time alone with the Lord. And he might say that you're too busy, but like Jesus, the busier you are, the more you need it. And you and your family will be better off for it. If, if Jesus, truly God and truly man, had to retreat to pray, how much more do you and I need to do that? Now here in the second miracle, we see Jesus' authority over sin in verses 18 to 24. Again, all three synoptic gospels include this, but again, it's in a different order. Mark tells us, though, that Jesus was here back in Capernaum. Now again, we're, we're seeing Luke building on what he's already told us and preparing us for what's to come. In the last section, remember in, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, the concept of, of sin was introduced, where Peter identified himself as a sinful man, and, and there was the implication that Jesus forgave him. Well, now the forgiveness is about to become more obvious. And this really marks a turning point in Luke's gospel account, that, that forgiveness comes through Jesus. Word about Jesus had spread through the entire nation. Well, one of the other results of the spread of Jesus' fame was that he now had a new group of observers, the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees, whose name means separate, thought to protect the law, and in so doing, they added to the law. 
They, they added all kinds of, of laws in the Mishnah that were, were meant to be like a fence around the law to protect people from obeying the law. And in so doing, they made it put an impossible burden on people's necks. These men were the religious leaders during the time of Jesus and the apostles. Josephus says that there were over 6,000 of them. And also present here are the scribes. Luke refers to here as the teachers of the law. They were religious lawyers. Now, I don't know how you feel about lawyers. We have friends who are lawyers that I like very much. But any disdain that people have for lawyers, these are spiritual lawyers. And they saw as their responsibility was to defend the law and not just the law of God. They saw as their responsibility to defend even all the, the extra biblical, all the unbiblical laws that the Pharisees had added to the law. Now, the earlier mention of the, of the priests and the ceremonial law sets the scene for their arrival. From among the Pharisees and the scribes uh, and the chief priests and the elders were drawn the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council. These were the, the religious big shots, the muckety-mucks. They were the ones that they called the shots. They had come from all over from every village of Galilee and Judea and even from Jerusalem. They, they'd come, these, these, these scribes and these Pharisees had come to check Jesus out, to see for themselves what this man was all about. And their sudden presence in great numbers from all over the country strikes an ominous chord and adds a, a new complication in Jesus' ministry as we're gonna see. So let's see what happens. Notice first at the end of verse 17, whose power is at work. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. Joel Green explains that the phrase, the power of the Lord is, is synonymous with the spirit of the Lord. We saw this in verse, uh, chapter four, verse 14, where Jesus returned to, to Galilee in the power of the spirit. The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. Now we meet some men who had a friend who needed help. Mark tells us that there were four of them. Their friend was a paralytic. Like Tyler and Cody, he couldn't move. And the friends knew that, that Jesus could heal, could heal him, so they, they carried Jesus on a stretcher to see Jesus, who was there teaching in Capernaum inside a house. But when they got there, the crowds were gathered so tightly around Jesus that they couldn't get, get the man close to Jesus. So again, we see the crowds are, being, are an obstacle to Jesus' ministry, keeping the one who really needed help from the one who could help him. So these, these men were, were industrious and, and they, were, they were ingenious. They were thinking outside the box. They, they took this paralyzed man up to the roof. Now, now in the homes at this time, there was, there was a flat roof and usually an external staircase that, that went up to it. It was like another, like, kind of like their deck, actually. And, and, they would, and they cut a hole in the roof and they lowered the man down on a stretcher until he was right in front of Jesus. These friends have faith. And their faith is persistent. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now this is the first use of the word that's translated faith in Luke. 
And as we're going to see throughout the rest of Luke, that this becomes a very common theme. This is a positive response to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Like the leper, these friends knew that Jesus was able to help and that he had God's power to heal. But they had just no idea how far the healing would go. And notice that it's, it's their faith. What does Luke mean when he talks about, about their faith? Now, Luke doesn't qualify the pronoun, so it, it likely includes the paralytic as well. So it was the faith of the friends and the paralytic. But think for a moment about, about this idea about, about faith. And I wonder, do, do you have faith for other people? Do, do you have faith for the people that you care about? Turn with me in your, in your Bible for a moment to, to James. James chapter 5. Look at verses 13 and following. Notice we have a sick person. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Verse 14. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Whose faith is that? Well, in this instance, it's, it's the faith of the elders. And I find it so ironic that those who, who believe the, the false prosperity gospel say that if you aren't being healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. Well, no, that's not true. If someone's not being healed, according to, 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 to their context, it's actually not their faith. It's, it's the elders who don't have enough faith. Now, in one sense, those who, who believe this, this doctrine are, are actually, they're actually correct in that, that, as we'll see, that there is a sense in which, in which there, you can claim healing through the atonement. But as we'll see in a moment, the primary healing that is received through the atonement is spiritual healing. Now, they are right that physical healing comes through the atonement as well, but not yet. The physical healing that, that we as Christians will experience is when we have glorified bodies at the return of Jesus. So, so don't, don't have an over-realized eschatology. Don't confuse the, the already when the not yet. Jesus did come to heal. And he heals through faith. But the most important healing, the only healing that is guaranteed at this point through the gospel is spiritual healing. Do you have faith for, for those you care about? Your, your faith in God will lead you to carry the needs of others, especially their spiritual needs, before the throne. How desperate are you to get those who you care about to Jesus? Have you brought those you care about to Jesus? Now, you don't have to carry them on a stretcher. But you could carry them in prayer. You don't have to cut a hole in the roof to introduce them to Jesus, but you can proclaim Jesus through the gospel. And so Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you. We get another look here at, at who Jesus is, at his, at his authority, at his, his compassion. This man 
had no right to be healed. He was a sinner just like you and me. Jesus had compassion and Jesus had authority to heal, but his authority that he's speaking about here is much greater than the authority merely to heal. He says, man, or in some translations, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus has authority to forgive. The verb that's, that's here is, is used in the, the passive voice. It's pointing to the fact that the, the forgiveness comes from God. God had given Jesus authority to pronounce sins forgiven, not just to heal. The verb here is also in the perfect tense. The, the forgiveness is fully and completely accomplished through the authority of Jesus. Jesus has absolute authority to pronounce forgiveness. Now the ministry of Jesus is beginning to take on fuller significance. This is what Jesus came for. This is what Jesus came for when he came to this earth. He came not just to, to pronounce and, and to make people physically clean, but to make them spiritually clean. Not just to heal them physically, but to heal them spiritually. And we see a little bit of that healing continuing into the book of Acts, but the healing that, that is, is still experienced at this moment through Jesus is primarily spiritual healing. This is the most important healing that you and I needed. And the only way that we can receive spiritual healing is through Jesus Christ. So again, this miracle is another parable. This man was completely helpless. This man couldn't move. This man couldn't do anything, not just to, to heal himself physically, but to be forgiven. Paul in Ephesians 2 even, even extends this, this metaphor. He says, you were dead. Not just physically enabled, not just paralyzed, but dead. Unable to do anything at all. This man had been completely helpless, but he was completely healed. Commentator William Manson says that, that what the incident is intended primarily to bring out is that the authority of Jesus in religion starts with the forgiveness of sins. He comes to deliver souls from the paralysis of moral and spiritual energy. Jesus has come to deliver us from our paralysis, from our moral and spiritual paralysis, from our moral and spiritual, not just paralysis, but our moral and spiritual death. And now the religious authorities spring into action. You get the sense that this is what they've been waiting for, the moment to strike. They began to question who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They make their judgment. Blasphemy is defilement of the divine name, and they believe that Jesus is doing this here by claiming a divine prerogative. It'd be one thing to, to heal someone, which would imply that, God's, that, that, that God is at work, but it would be quite another to say that, that I have the authority to forgive you. 
This was solely a divine prerogative. Jesus is going to do it again in the next, in the next section. And then in, in Luke 7, verses 48 and 49, he, he pronounces forgiveness on the woman who had anointed his feet with her hair. And again, it receives another strong reaction. Because only God can pronounce forgiveness. Again, in one sense, the Pharisees are right. Only God can pronounce forgiveness. But they were forgetting that the God-man was right here in front of them. They had no idea who Jesus really was. Conviction of blasphemy was punishable by death through stoning. Blasphemy is the, is the charge that is going to lead to the religious authorities handing Jesus over to the Romans to crucify him. Jesus is now going to begin to face the direct opposition from the religious establishment. And this organized, focused challenge to Jesus is a new type of response. And this opposition is going to continue to escalate until it culminates in the cross. It's going to continue even into the book of Acts when the Pharisees set their sights on the apostles. Again, they were, they were correct in their understanding that, that only God can forgive sin, but they wrongly assume that Jesus is blaspheming. They say, who is this? Now Luke often includes questions starting with who in relation to Jesus. Who is he? Is he a teacher? Is he a prophet? Is he, is he the Messiah? He is someone whose greatness they couldn't even imagine. They were right, but they were oh so wrong. But notice that they didn't say these things out loud. Jesus perceived, verse 22, he perceived their thoughts and he answered them. Why do you question this in your hearts? This is another miracle. Jesus here is, is showing omniscience. He, he knew their thoughts and literally he, he knew fully. Mark 2.8 says this was in his spirit. And Matthew includes the details, why do you think evil in your hearts? Matthew 9.4. So these men were accusing Jesus of being evil and Jesus is saying, no, you are evil. Jesus had the authority to pronounce this man's sins forgiven, but he had the authority to pronounce these men's sins unforgiven. This is prophetic knowledge. But Jesus is so much more than a prophet. Like in chapter 4, verse 23, where, where he knew the thinking of those in Nazareth. This is another fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy from, two, from Luke 2.35, that the hearts of many may be revealed. At the thought, at the, at the authority of Jesus, at the coming of Jesus, not just their thoughts, but all thoughts, your thoughts are revealed. Jesus knows your thoughts too. He knows all of your thoughts. Psalm 139, verse 4, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He's omniscient. What does Jesus know about your thoughts? Jesus continues in verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. Notice here that Jesus doesn't answer their question. Instead, he answers their question with a question. This, friends, is a very helpful tactic. 
When you are trying to witness to someone who asks you questions, you aren't compelled to answer their questions. Consider the heart behind their question and then ask them a question that, that is meant to reveal their heart. That's what Jesus does here. He, he's saying, is it harder to forgive or to, than to heal? Certainly forgiveness would cost a lot more to Jesus than healing. It would cost him his very life. But as Bach explains, is it, is it easier to say something that can't be visually verified than to say something that can be visually verified? The, the easier claim from the, from, the, from the observer's point of view is to claim, to claim forgiveness of sins since it can't be proved. And if this is the case, the bottom line is this. Is Jesus' declaration an empty word or is it the real thing? That's the bottom line. Is Jesus just spouting off? Or does he really have the authority to forgive? Does he really have God's word and power behind him? And then the healing is, is tied closely to his message. And the, the message confirms, is the message is confirmed by the healing. This is a picture of a profound spiritual reality. This is God's divine attestation to Jesus' authority, not just to heal, but also to forgive. And then Jesus ramps it up even more. He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The cure doesn't just show that Jesus has authority to heal over paralysis, but he also has authority over sin. Jesus has authority from God to forgive. Now, the Jews wrongly thought that all sickness was due to sin. I've experienced some of that kind of, of thinking. But don't conclude that all sickness comes from sin. We see this in, in, among other places, in John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, when the blind man, the man who had been born blind, comes before Jesus and the disciples say, well, who sinned? This man or his parents? But Jesus says, neither. But this is so that God might be glorified. So don't conclude that, that when you are experiencing hard times, it's because God is punishing you. Definitely don't make that conclusion when it comes to the suffering you see in someone else's life. Jesus has authority to heal and to forgive. This is Luke's first use of the word son of man. And he goes on to use it 26 times in his gospel account. And we see this, this phrase used in the scriptures in, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Let's just, just go there for a moment to Daniel um, chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and authority and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So this one who came like a son of man had authority. 
His authority, His extensive authority, His dominion and glory. Daniel is here seeing a vision of Christ. And then Jesus is here using this title, Son of Man, to refer to Himself. In fact, this is the, the most common way that Jesus refers to Himself. It, it speaks of His unparalleled and unique authority. It's a reference of Himself as the Messiah, showing that He has authority in word and in deed. And so this, this paralysis that we saw in this passage is, is not just about the paralysis. It's about the paralysis of sin. And again, Jesus is offering liberty in fulfillment of Luke 4, 18 and 19, in fulfillment of, of Isaiah 61. Jesus has authority from God to forgive sins. So this is another cleansing. This isn't just a cleansing from, from a disease. This is a cleansing from sin. And so this, the fact that, that the, and the Pharisees and the scribes would have known this, that God does not work through liars. They're left to question amongst themselves, well, what does this healing mean? What does this healing mean? And throughout the course of Jesus' ministry, they're going to get this wronger and wronger and wronger. They're going to misjudge Jesus more and more powerfully and profoundly until they hand him over to be crucified. But let's look here at the, for a moment at the people's response in verses 25 and 26. Well, how did the man respond? Immediately, he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Notice that again, he's healed immediately. The cure is immediate. He was fully healed. So the fulfillment of Jesus' command here is immediate. And this time the man obeyed. This time the man picked up his mat and went home. John Bengal says this is a happy expression. The couch that had borne the man. And now the man was bearing the couch. Luke regularly and explicitly states that God's saving action responds with gratitude and with joy. But that's not all, all that happens. He glorifies God. He glorifies God. Again, this is something that's, that's new here. This is a new response that we're seeing, and this is going to continue throughout Jesus' ministry. I trust that you have responded with, with gratitude and joy and that you're continuing to respond with gratitude and joy for what God has done in your life. But I wonder, are you in, when you do, you're glorifying God. But are there other ways that you can intentionally glorify God for what he has done in saving you? I think the implication here is that you can, you can tell people this man is not told to be silent. And he's not. He tells people about Jesus. That's how you can glorify God. But now the response expands, not just, just to the man, but, but to them all. Amazement. There's that word again. They were amazed. They were seized by amazement. 
This isn't just the man. This isn't just his friends. This is all of them. And who is included in that all? The scribes and the Pharisees. They too were amazed. Now it doesn't say here that they were glorifying God, but they say, we have seen extraordinary things today. The word that's translated extraordinary is, is also the, the word from which we get the word paradoxical. It, it doesn't make sense. They, they can't figure it out. Spoiler warning, they're not going to figure it out, at least the Pharisees. They're never going to figure it out. Now Mark actually does say that they did glorify God. But this glory is, is temporary. Even their initial response brings glory to God. They were filled with awe. Again, we're, we're very familiar with this story, with others like it in the Gospels. We, we've all heard this story probably many times. We've all read it many times. We've read it to our children. We've read Bible stories about it. But are you still filled with awe? Are you still filled with awe at Jesus? At who he is and, and what he has come to do? Are you still filled with awe at what Jesus did for you? Matthew 9, 8 adds the detail that they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So it shows that they didn't get it. So we've seen all kinds of responses to Jesus. Violent rejection. We've seen selfish rejection. We've seen repentance and faith. But now people are glorifying God. They're giving glory to God because of the ministry of Jesus. So again, presumably the Pharisees and the scribes glorified God too. But nonetheless, the scene is set for their rejection. And this rejection is going to be heightened in the next passage. But Jesus says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, yet again, and every day through Jesus' ministry, that scripture was fulfilled. In fact, every day in Jesus' ministry, the scripture continued to be fulfilled because all of the scripture of the Old Testament pointed to him. Jesus had authority to cleanse from leprosy and authority to cleanse from sin. In Ezekiel 35, verses 25 to 27, the prophet says, for the word for God, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you should be clean from your uncleanness and all from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my rules and my statutes and be careful to Obey my rules. This is the fulfillment that comes through Jesus. This is the fulfillment of the new covenant that Jesus came to bring. This cleansing. This spiritual cleansing from the sin that has bound us, from the sin that was destroying us, from the sin that kept us completely unable to glorify God or to serve God or to do anything good at all. Jesus has cleansed us. If you are here as a Christian this morning, you have been cleansed. You have been set free. You have been enabled to do that which you have been made to do, to love and to worship and to serve God. 
But if you hear this morning as one who has not been cleansed, as one who is still powerless to do anything good, still powerless to do anything to save yourself, simply look to Jesus in repentance and faith. And he has authority to forgive and to cleanse you too. Let's pray together. Holy God, we praise you for the cleansing that we have received in Jesus. The cleansing that we have received through Jesus' blood. Lord, we praise you for this great forgiveness that we have received in you. And we pray that you would help us to continue by your grace to confess our sins to you and trust that you are still faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask this in your matchless name. Amen.